All right, so uh, this month, I'm really excited. I've been doing a lot of uh, just study and thinking about uh, the person of Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus, and I just feel like God has asked me to teach through the story of Mary and the arrival of Jesus, and so this week, I'm gonna be teaching when Gabriel, uh, the angel, comes to announce to Mary that she will uh, bear the king of the world in Jesus. And next week, we're going to be looking at Mary's song. And so we're going to be looking at Mary this month. And I'm super excited about it. And so we're just going to jump in. But before we do, uh, let's pray. God, we're so thankful that we get to be a part of a community that worships you. And God, we're so thankful that we get to sing because you changed our hearts. And God, we're so thankful that you changed our hearts because 2,000 years ago, you died on the cross for our sin. And so, God, I pray that we would be filled with gratefulness tonight. I pray that we'd be filled with passion and love for Jesus that would uh, transform our hearts into obedience, uh, that would bring life to the full, even if it cost us. And so, Jesus, I'm just so thankful. I pray that you bless this community as we uh, hear your word tonight, and I pray that you bless us as we transition in the new year. God, we're excited for what's ahead, and, and we're excited for tonight. And God, our, our, our hearts are open and ready. Uh, would you speak to us? In the name of Jesus, amen. Okay, so last, uh, last May, my wife and I uh, had the privilege of going to Italy. And uh, Harley, you can put the first picture on the screen. Literally, we could never have afforded this trip, but uh, some family literally like, said they wanted to do a big trip and they were gonna pay for us. So my whole family, including baby Kinsley, we flew multiple flights across the water, landed in Europe, and we got to spend a whole week in Italy. We got to do a European cruise. And one of the stops that we got to go in was Rome. And so uh, this was Rome. This is, this is lit up at night. If you look on the left, kind of that big White House looking building is St. Peter's Basilica. And anyways, like this is like the Vatican. It's like the heart of Rome. It was like an absolute incredible experience. And partly, if you go to the next picture, one of my, uh, my favorite moments of this trip where, um, I know you're laughing and I'll, I'll laugh with you in a second, but we got to go inside of St. Peter's Basilica. So this is like a picture to like prove it. And it might as well be the worst picture ever because I don't know who I'm smiling at, but it's, I'm not smiling at the camera. And then my daughter is looking opposite of me. And then of course my wife is beautiful doing exactly what needs to be done to make the picture happen, but we failed. And then if you look before, like below Kinsley's butt, you'll see like a pee stain because my daughter decided that the best time to pee on dad's shirt with no change would be in the middle of this beautiful church. And so I'm walking around with a baby, literally soaked in pee, and I was like, well, this is parenting. So, uh, But the reason I show you this picture is uh, not to just show you that I went to Italy, but I, I had a profound moment with my wife. Uh, if you look behind us, there's kind of like that dark um, architecture, and literally right behind us is the tomb of St. Peter. Uh, Peter is one of Jesus' 12 disciples, and uh, I actually didn't even know that. I like, walked in, I was like, what's everybody looking at? It shows how much I research things before I go and do them. And, and, and literally, they're like, this is the tomb of the apostle Peter. And so what happened is years ago, they were excavating uh, the land, and they found literally like a tomb that said Petros, the tomb of Petros, and, and they're like pretty sure that this is the tomb of Peter. And I remember I was standing there with my wife, and there was something that just was like, so real about that moment. And Crystal looked over to me and she's like, I can't believe this thing is like real. Like I can literally, like that man who's buried there literally walked with our Lord and Savior. I can literally open my Bible 
and read what he said. And she said, there's just something about being there, seeing it, that turned it, like I know it's real, but it kind of feels mythical. It's like, oh, these are great Christmas stories and Mary and Jesus. And she's like, but there's something that is just really real about this scene. And the reason I share that is because I think for us who live in America, we live in the West, uh, we don't have like, our oldest buildings are like 200 years old maybe, and like their newest buildings are like 500 years old. And there's just something about being in a place where, where it feels historic that I was there and I was like, man, I'm a part of a rich historic faith that just brought my faith to life. And so my, my appeal to you as we enter into the story of Mary tonight, my appeal to you as we kind of think through this story is that like this story that you're gonna hear tonight is not mythical, it's historical. There was a real Jesus, there was a real Mary, and it has radical implications for our lives today. So with that being said, let's just jump into the story of Mary, and uh, I'm really excited for this. So uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 26, it says this, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, that's uh, Mary's uh, cousin, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth. So Gabriel is a big deal angel because God has big deal news. Literally, it's one of the only uh, is one of two angels that are named in the Bible, and he's and he goes to a, a to Nazareth, which is a town in Galilee, and then in verse 27 to a virgin, pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. That's Mary a descendant of, uh, of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored. I love this. The Lord is with you. Now, let me just pause for a second. And let me just talk about who Mary is. Uh, I put a picture on the screen of Mary and just, I'm just trying to get you into the story. Mary was a real person. Like there was an actual encounter where, where, where this angel showed up to her and she's hearing this news and like put yourself in a situation. It would be powerful. It would be transformative. Now, when I think of Mary, like in my imagination, I think of, honestly, I think of somebody who's my wife's age. I think of somebody like in their mid twenties, maybe even late twenties. But most scholars think that uh, in this time, uh, Jewish girls or young ladies got married in between between ages 13 and 14, and she wasn't married yet. So most likely, uh, Mary was 12 to 14 years old when this happened. So think about a, a high school senior, or um, <clears throat> no, yeah, high school. No, no, sorry, sorry, sorry. Think. <laughs> you're like, how old were you in high school? No, <laughs> think, think of, uh, think of an eighth grader, and think of a fresh, a freshman in high school. Like this is a young gal. Uh, Mary was a, a poor peasant. She was from a no-name city, and she was in a, a female in a male-dominated culture. And she, from society's perspective, would have been seen as weak and unimportant in the world's eyes. And not only would she be seen this way, but the place she's from would be seen this way. I'm going to put the picture on the screen again. I'm just trying to get you like this is this is modern-day Nazareth, and uh, the Catholic Church just like like to build buildings on top of where like things were important. And so this big building right here is most likely uh, where uh, Joseph and Mary and Jesus lived growing up. This is modern-day Nazareth. Nazareth was a small, isolated town in Galilee. You guys have to understand this. It was unimportant. It was unimpressive. And it was undesirable. Like nobody in that time was like, hey, you know where we're moving to? Nazareth. Nobody would have been excited about that. People would have been like, it's kind of, it's kind of how people talk about Tucson. It's like, but it's like worse, you know, I'm not, no judgment on Tucson, but it's like nobody, like nobody brags about Nazareth. And I love this. Kent Hughes, uh, who's like a pastor kind of summarizes who Mary is. And I love this Think about this. He goes, Mary is a nobody in a nothing town in the middle 
of nowhere. She's a nobody. And I think the first thing that we can learn from this passage that I think was really powerful, if you let this sink in, is this. I'm going to put it on the screen, and this is something that you can take notes on. God is all about doing unlikely things with unlikely people in unlikely places. God is all about doing unlikely things with unlikely people in unlikely places places. And when I was sitting in the story and I was like, man, like literally there is like, there is nobody else that is more unlikely that God would have showed up, that God would have had this miraculous, unlikely thing that he wanted to do other than Mary. She was, she was poor. She was a female in that culture. She was a, a peasant. She was 12 to 14 years old. She was not on the map. And God's plan for the universe is to show up to 12-year-old Mary in her bedroom and say, I have a plan for you and it's going to be ridiculous. And here's why this is super encouraging to me. I feel like in my life, if you feel like you are unlikely, like you think about your, your life, you're like, man, there, it is unlike, I'm an unlikely person that God would want to do something through. I don't have gifts. I'm not as gifted as that person. I'm from a family that I just feel like has all sorts of brokenness. I'm in a place where it feels like nobody sees me. What's my value here? This passage goes, that is, that is you're in a prime place for God to use you. And actually, like this is, I'll just be really honest with me. When I read this story, it is, it is so encouraging to me because you look in the world's eyes and they always, like they're picking the likely, the likely person from the likely place with the likely degree to do something really profound. But it really made me reflect honestly of how I got into ministry. And like, I'm just going to, this is just personally how this resonated with me. Um, <clears throat> so when I, when I started leading this ministry, uh, I'll just be honest, I was really insecure. I was really young. I was probably in my early 20s. Um, I hated talking in front of people. And I feel even embarrassing sharing these stories with you. But like my only memories before like doing things like this of speaking in front of people were just like ultimate failing. I remember being in high school and uh, they like the seniors had to do something at chapel and speak. And I was one of the speakers that got asked to speak. And I was like so excited. I had this thing, this amazing illustration that was so bad. And I remember trying to talk in front of people and like I was so nervous. I couldn't even, I, I literally couldn't even talk straight in front of my whole school. And I was embarrassed. I was tripping over my words. I don't even know what I said. And I literally was like, I went blank and I walked off stage. And I remember there was a girl from my class that she's like, you sounded really incompetent. And I was like, thank you. Have a great day. <clears throat> but I, but like, that stuck deep in me. Like, it's, I can laugh about it now, but it stuck deep in me. And I remember, fast forward, GCU college public speaking class, and I was like, okay, I've grown, it's a few years later. And I remember doing my, my, my first like, speech there, and literally like, my leg was like And like my whole speech, like, I'm so nervous that like, my leg is shaking, and all I can think about is how can I get my leg to stop shaking so my class doesn't think that I'm nervous, because I, like, anyways, all this stuff. So I started getting into ministry, and I'm like, Lord, I remember like, praying, like, Lord, there is literally a thousand people that could be doing what I'm doing right now. I want out. I don't want to do this anymore. God, there's people that are smarter. There's people that are better gifted. There's people, there's, there are better people fit for the job. And I remember uh, God's response was massively encouraging to me and massively humbling to me. Because what I wanted God to say is like, no, you're amazing. You're gifted. You're the right person. And I remember like praying to this, and this is what the Lord said to me. I'd be like, God, there's so many people that could preach better than me. And he's like, I know. I was like, okay. I was like, God, there's so many people that could like lead better than me. He's like, I know. 
And God, there's so many people that are more likely, are like, just choose somebody else. And God's like, oh, I could easily do that. And he's like, but I want you to do it. But I want you to do it. And I just want to say something to you. You may have something in your life that God's calling you to. You may have something in your life where you just feel insecure, insignificant, and you have no idea why would God choose you. Here's the thing in the story. God chooses the unlikely to do unlikely things for purposes that you can't even imagine. And God does it by grace. We see this. Look, he says, the, the angel says, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And I love this. That word favor uh, literally comes from the Greek word grace. And so it's like God's decision to use Mary wasn't because she was worthy, wasn't because like, she was exceptional above everybody else. It's because God was gracious. And when God chooses to use you, when he calls you, it's by his own grace. And what I love about this is God is not looking for people who are worthy He's looking for people who are willing. I just want to tell you guys, listen, if you're trying to be worthy and prove to God why you're worth using, listen, God is not looking for people who are worthy. He is looking for people who are willing. And I think that's just a powerful thing that I have been reflecting on. Let's continue with the story. Verse 29. So Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. She's like, I wonder what this is about. And I would too. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. I love that. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and he will be called son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's or Israel's descendants forever and his kingdom will never end. So, the, so Gabriel comes and she, she's wondering like, hey, what is this all about? And he's, she was like, listen, you're, he goes, you're about to have a son. And I love you. His name's going to be Jesus. He's going to be great. He's going to be son of the most high. He's going to have a throne. He's going to be the son of David. He's going to reign uh, forever. And I, and I love this. And I think it's really important here to pay attention to the titles that Gabriel is giving Jesus at the start of his life. First of all, Jesus' name is Jesus. And that Jesus literally means Yahweh saves. So right off the bat, Gabriel's going, listen, you're going to have a son and he's going to be a savior. Uh, he's going to save his people from his sin, from their, from their sin. And something that's even like a kind of a play on words, but it's a really powerful image. Uh, the New Testament was written in Greek. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Hebrew, uh, the name Jesus and the name Joshua are the same. And so what I love about this is in the Old Testament, if Mary would have been familiar with, uh, with this image. Joshua was the person that God chose to, to lead the people of God into the promised land. And in Jesus' name being Jesus, Joshua, he, the, the angel is painting Jesus as like this greater Joshua that's going to lead the people of God out of slavery and into the new creation. And he goes on, he says, uh, this, your son is going to be great. He's going to be son of the most high. And that title, most high, is uh, the exalted name for God in the Old Testament. So oftentimes when King David praises God, he calls God the most high. It's like he is the exalted one. He's above over everything. He is the exalted one. And not only is he going to be... Uh, <clears throat> son of the exalted one, but that word son uh, comes from Psalm 2. It's not just talking about father-son relationship, but the son in Psalm 2 is the one that the father gives the nations to rule over. So the angel is saying, listen, you're going to have a son and he's going to rule over the nations. And he goes on to say there's all this Davidic language. There's, he's going to have a throne. He's going to reign. He's going he's to reign forever and his kingdom will never end. It's powerful political language being in the Roman Empire 
where Caesar was great, where Caesar was the son of the most high or was the most high, where he was the one on the throne, where, where Rome's kingdom will never end. And, it's, and it's, it's, it's crazy powerful what's going on here. And essentially at the end of the day, what the angel calls Mary to and what, and what the angel tells Mary is, is, listen, in summary, this is what the angel is promising. Now step in Mary's shoes. Out of nowhere, this angel comes to you and says, you're gonna have a son He's going to be a savior. He's going to be son of Yahweh, the living God. Uh, he's going to rule over the nations. He, and you are going to have a son that is going to be the most powerful ruler this world has ever seen. Amen? I think uh, if we just moved on from this and didn't apply this to our lives, that um, we would do ourselves a disservice. And when I was reflecting on Jesus being king, reigning, conquering all the kingdoms of the world, reign victorious, I think there are two things that this uh, will challenge us to. I think the first thing is that I think this is a challenge to our cultural allegiances and our personal political loyalties. Uh, if you were living in the Roman Empire and you read this, you would be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like this is loaded with political language. Uh, I remember when I was, uh, <clears throat> uh, it was probably a couple years back, I was, I was meeting with like a friend and uh, I, met th I met this guy and we started like this friendship. We started uh, hanging out, having a, a couple of drinks here and there. Uh, and I remember this one time we were hanging out at the Four Silos, a coffee shop in Gilbert. And I remember, you know, like every friendship gets to a point where you like eventually ask like the awkward questions, you know, but you got to have like that window before you, you ask those questions. And I remember we were sitting down and I think there was like, it might have been like peak of political season. And I remember he asked me, he goes, so are you a Republican or a Democrat? Now everybody's like, what is he about to say? <laughs> and I remember recently, while all that was going on, I was going to school, I was like, uh, listening to the Bible Project podcast a lot. And there's this one Bible Project po podcast episode that has stuck in my mind like crazy. Uh, and I remember Tim Mackey was talking and he goes, if you were an early Christian and you asked these early Christians, what are you, what's your politic? They would have said, Jesus is Lord. That's my politic. Jesus is Lord. If you are a Christian, your politics are Jesus is Lord. And I remember that was fresh in my mind and I was thinking through this like, yeah, Jesus reigns over all things. I remember looking at my buddy who, who was an unbeliever. He didn't even know who Paul was. He had like no clue. And I remember like, hey, it's like, just so you know, before I answer this question, you need to know that as Christians, we think about this in totally different categories than the world does. And I told him, and I'll tell you what I told him. I said, I personally refuse to call myself a Republican because there's idolatry in the Republican Party. I refuse to call myself a Democrat because there's idolatry in the Democratic Party. And to say I am a Republican or I am a Democrat means that like I'm aligning with those things and it's like a, a loyalty. And I said, you have to understand like as a Christian, when you ask what my politics are, I go, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And, uh, and so I just wanna say something to you right now. If you are a Christian in the room, engage in politics, yes. Try to do good, seek justice, but I want you to know, if you are a Christian, your ultimate identity is not with a donkey, it's not with an elephant, it's with a lamb. Amen? Amen. If you are a Christian, your politics is Jesus as Lord. I think the second thing that this challenges is not just like cultural allegiances, but I think this challenges uh, our personal empires. 
in our personal kingdoms that we seek to build. Uh, Jesus being Lord of all just doesn't mean that he's Lord over all things, he's Lord over politics. It means he's actually Lord over your life, that every area of your life, uh, Jesus' lordship claims authority. So you are not your own, your body is not your own, your money is not your own, your time is not your own. Every area of your life needs to bring brought into submission to to Jesus. And uh, this is kind of a silly illustration, but I think it makes the point. Uh, So my wife and I, since having a daughter, we've been kind of cleaning out our house. Uh, We literally have bins everywhere. And I'm like, I don't get attached to like things as much. And so I'm like, throw away, throw away, throw away. Like we need space. Like I just start throwing stuff away. And then my wife will come to me two weeks later. She's like, hey, where'd you do, what'd you do with that one thing? And I'm like, uh, threw it away. It's like, and then you can imagine how that conversation goes. But I remember, so like, so we're organizing, we have boxes and bins everywhere, and we're like, we're reorganizing, we're taking things from that side of the house, and we're just putting things back into their proper order so that our home can flourish. And I remember there's always a bin in all of the organization, there's always a bin that Crystal says, don't touch that box. That box is off limits. You can do whatever you want with these other things. Do not touch that box. And I think as we follow Jesus, we have areas of our lives. We have been, so to speak. It might be your your friendships. It might be your relationship. It might be sexuality. It might be money. It might be all these things. And I just want you to know, I'm going to ask you a question. What been in your life do you tell Jesus, don't touch that box? What is it in your life where you go like, Jesus, you can order that part of my life. You can have your way here. Oh, yes, please. Just don't touch that box. Jesus' lordship has implications for every area of our life. Let's continue on with the story. In verse 34, Mary responds. So, she, so think about this. So she's, she's a Jew. She's raised in Old Testament scriptures. She, she knows that, that, that the son of hers is going to be a son of David. He's going to rule over the nations. He's going to be the one to bring in God's future. And this is how she responds in verse 34. She says, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? Now Mary here, she is not doubting God. This question isn't building on doubt. This question is building on faith. And I love that Mary didn't wonder if it would happen, but she would wonder how it would happen. You can imagine, she's like, I'm not even married yet. How is this going to happen? And she's, she's just wanting to, to know more information. And she's probably wanting to know more information, not because she's doubting God, but she wants to know, is there something that I need to do to make this happen? Compared to Zechariah, which we don't have time to go in the story, but his question is actually doubting God. Mary here is showing faith because she goes, what do I need to do to make this happen? I hear your word. The angel goes on in verse 35 and says this. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One, or the set-apart one, to be born will be called the Son of God. There's that language from Psalm 2 again. And verse 36 says this, Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she, who is said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month, for no word of God will ever fail. Now you have to understand this language about the spirit uh, coming upon and the power of God overshadowing. This is, this is all echoing Genesis 1 in the creation narrative. Uh, in, the, in the beginning of the Bible, you have God creating the universe out of nothing. Uh, and then it says specifically in Genesis chapter 1 that the spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. It's very similar language than the spirit of God like overshadowing Mary. And so I think what the angel is saying here is, he's saying, listen, in other words, just as God brought forth something out of nothing in creation, 
the spirit, and just as the spirit was like overshadowing the waters, so God through the spirit is doing a miraculous work of creation in your womb. Just as he's calling back to Genesis 1, I think, I think it's saying like this, and there's a new beginning for the people of God, and it's happening in your womb. And he says the proof of this is that Elizabeth, your relative, who is called barren, is already six months along because no word of God will ever fail. N.T. Wright says this about this passage, about the Holy Spirit coming upon us. I think it's beautiful. He says, Mary is the supreme example of what always happens when God is at work by grace through human beings. God's power from the outside and the indwelling of the spirit within together result in things being done which would have been unthinkable any other way. I think Mary in the situation, like this is literally what's happening is it's unthinkable, it's unfathomable, it's like beyond human comprehension. And when I was at this part in the passage, uh, reflecting on my life, um, and honestly, when I was thinking of you, I, I kind of had this thought, I was like, man, when the Spirit of God grabs a hold of somebody, and when the Spirit of God uh, starts to work in, some, work in somebody, that person starts doing unthinkable things. And don't fill in like American unthinkable things where it's like bigger, better, faster, but like unthinkable things start to happen in your life. And I really look at you in the room and I just wonder like on your behalf, like as your pastor who loves you, as your friend who loves you, of like, I I wonder what unthinkable things God has planned for many of you in this room. I don't know if you think about that in your relationship with God, um, but I just gotta be honest if I'm being transparent with you, like, one of my deepest prayers is like, Lord, I don't, I genuinely do not want to waste this life. And I, God, like by the power of your spirit, like I want to do incredible things for your kingdom. I want you to, I want, I have to tell God, like I want you to do things through my life that can only be explained by the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's a question. How much of your life can be explained apart from the Holy Spirit? And maybe I'll flip it a different way. What if you opened yourself up to the will of God, the call of God, the spirit of God, where every day you had a a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit? I wonder what unthinkable things God might ask you to do, call you to do, empower you to do. But there's also the second question that I thought of when I read this story. I wonder how many of you will be willing to receive the call when God asks you to do the unthinkable. I think oftentimes we go, God, yes, I wanna do, I wanna serve you, I wanna do things for your kingdom. And God's like, all right, great. And then he asks you to do something, and it's like, I'm not willing. And the reason I was reflecting on that is because of how willing Mary was. Look how this story ends. Some of the most beautiful words, literally in all of scripture, and I pray that you pray these words every single day until Christmas and for the rest of your life. Look at, look at, look at what it says, verse 38. She goes, I am the Lord's servant. Pause. Mary did not, take that back. God did not exist to serve Mary. Mary existed to serve God. She says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then, says the angel left her. I remember uh, when I put myself in Mary's shoes, I was like, her response is, like, imagine, okay, again, don't picture 25-year-old, picture 12-year-old Mary saying, I'm the Lord's servant. 
may your word to me be fulfilled. Beautiful childlike faith. Uh, And the reason why this is so powerful is I want you to notice what Mary didn't do, which is what I would do. Uh, Notice that Mary didn't doubt God's promise to her. She wasn't like, "Ah, I don't know, you know, like she didn't like try to like, you know, she didn't like feed her doubts, but she didn't doubt God's promise to her. I noticed that Mary didn't raise objections out of intimidation or fear. Oftentimes when God calls us to do the unthinkable, we're intimidated by it or we're fearful because we don't know what obedience will do. And she doesn't raise objections out of intimidation or fear with God. She just says, like, I am the Lord's servant, your word be done. Uh, And I love this. Mary didn't ask God to explain himself beyond what he needed to. How often when God asks you to do something, you're like, well, you need to tell me how this is going to work out in my finances. You need to tell me how this is going to work out in this relationship. And like, you need to tell me. Like, but Mary, I love it. She doesn't ask God. She doesn't doubt God. She doesn't raise objections. She doesn't ask God to explain himself. She just, I love this. All Mary needed to know was what God said. And then God had her obedience. And more than that, she surrenders and submits even when it's going to potentially cost her greatly. I'm sure if you've heard this sermon taught, you've, you've heard that, like, the cost that would have come on Mary. But I want, just think about this for, like, for a second in a fresh way. Mary saying yes to God would deeply potentially cost her. Some of these things didn't end up costing her, but some of these things she had to risk saying, God, yes, I will follow you. I'm your servant, even if it's going to cost me greatly. Look at, here's just a few. She had to be willing up to give, she had to be willing to give up her dream of marriage uh, imagine going back to Joseph being like, so I'm pregnant. With who? Uh, a baby. Who's the dad? God, kind of. Like, like, no, no, like, like nobody had a, Joseph would not have had a category of that. How many of you would give up your dream of marriage to follow God? Imagine the sorrow. Mary, Mary knows she steps into that. Uh, she had, I know I see you guys looking at each other. About to be married. It's going to be special. All right, back to, anyways, back to it. I can't wait. I'm excited. We're gonna, it's going to be a blast. Okay, she had to give up her willing, uh, her uh, reputation and honor. Uh, imagine the gossip in her hometown. Nazareth was a small town. Imagine people gossiping about, imagine people gossiping about you because you wanted to follow Jesus. She had to be willing to give up her family and even her village because this is like very communal culture. Like she would have been ostracized in a lot of ways probably. And, and because of that, she would have had to face poverty. So she was saying yes to sorrow, yes to gossip, yes to poverty. Deuteronomy, the, the, there was a, the death penalty for adultery. So her saying yes to God was saying yes to potential uh, like being killed, and that was being the end of her life. Uh, she had to face the pressure from Jesus' success and rejection. How many of you read Jesus' life and go, man, Jesus was under a ton of pressure? How many of you think about how that affected his mom? People going to her, gossiping about her son, complaining about her son, like the son that she loves. She had to, to face that cost. And how many of you can imagine watching your child being tortured, naked, and crucified, and buried in the ground because your son was following God's call in his life? And all of this because she said, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. All of this because she said, not my will, but your will be done. Amen? When I was thinking about this passage, one of the, the, I, was, I was sitting in this, and um, one of the people that I love the most in my life, or like literally like I hold back tears every single time I get to this, is I love my mom. Like, I really love my mom. I have so many incredible memories of growing up 
walking into my mom's bedroom and she doesn't know I'm there and her eyes are closed and she's worshiping Jesus. She's reading the scriptures. She prayed with me. I learned to value time with God through her. And I was just like, as her son, I learned so much from my mom. And I remember reading these verses of like, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And I was like, that sure sounds like Jesus's prayer, not my will, but your will be done. And then I had this thought, I was like, I wonder if Jesus learned to pray from his mom. And I was like, the prayer that Jesus gave us to pray, not my will, but your will be done. I wonder if Jesus's mom gave that prayer to Jesus to pray. And then Jesus gave that prayer to us to pray. And we'll give that prayer to our kids to pray. It's a powerful moment. And I was right, I I remember in one of the, uh, look at this quote, it's so beautiful. R.C. Sproul says this, the beginning of Jesus's life is marked by a mother who submits to the will of God. And the end of Jesus's life is marked by the words, not my will, but your will be done. I think Jesus learned a lot from his mom. No wonder, no wonder Mary is a model. And no wonder God chose Mary to carry the son of the living God. She is an incredible woman of God, an incredible woman of God. And so as we kind of wrap up, uh, I was thinking about this passage and just like how this would apply to our lives. How should we leave? What should we be thinking about? And this passage was like so, it was so encouraging to me because I was like, man, it just shows that God is just looking for people who are available and for people who are willing. People who are available in their life for God and people who are willing to step into the thing that God wants them to do. And then I was like, and this passage is so challenging because God is just looking for people who are available and for people who are willing. And I go like, God is just looking for people who are available and willing. And how available and willing am I? How, how av- Let me ask you this. In the last week, how available have you been to God? Like last month, if God had something profound to, to talk to you about, to lead you and to use you, how available have you been? And when he spoke, how willing have you been? And so as we wrap up, here's the thing. I just have three questions that I do not want to fill in the blank for you, but I just want you to take a picture of these, reflect them, and these are the things that I want you to be thinking about as we wrap up today. Uh, one, in this Advent season, where in your life can you be more available for God and his voice? Listen, don't go through December filling up your schedules where you don't have time for God. Where, can, where in your life can you be more available for God, and, for God and his voice? If you are not hearing the voice of God in your life, the first thing that I would ask is, do you have space to even hear it? Second, where in your life is God asking you to move from willful to willing? Where is God asking you to move from control to surrender? Listen, Every single one of us, like I said, has a box, has an area in our life that we are trying to manage, that we are willful, so to speak. And I think God is inviting us to pray the prayer of Mary, to be like, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. And lastly, where do you, you need to simply trust and obey God right now? Listen, this passage, yes, it's about Jesus' lordship. Yes, it's about this beautiful response of Mary. Yes, it's about all, God uses unlikely people but this passage is ultimately a call to trust and obey. 
And I know for some of you that sounds exhausting, that sounds scary, and so here's the last thing that I want to share with you, and this is a verse that has been on my mind for the last year. There is a psalm, I don't even know where it is, but it goes like this, those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. See, some of you think stepping in in obedience to God is going to zap your energy, and it's going to crush you. But I'm telling you, when you step out in obedience and trust God in whatever area he is calling you in your life, you'll strangely find that your strength is renewed because you're living in the will of God, that you're following him, and you're following in the pattern of Jesus' mom. So as we end tonight, let me ask you this. Where in your life do you need to be available to God? Where can you create space? Where can you move from control to surrender? And where can you choose to trust and obey. With that, let's pray. God, thank you so much for your kindness. God, thank you that you are with us, and thank you that no word from you will ever fail. God, I pray that because that is true, that would give us the trust to follow your voice, because God, when you promise things to us, you will stay true to your promise. And so, Lord, I just pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts. God, I pray that you would bring conviction of sin. Uh, God, that we might turn from what is less satisfying to the ultimate giver of life. And so I just want to take a moment for you in the room with heads bowed and eyes closed, and if you're comfortable, to put your hands And maybe the position of Mary's words, a hands of surrender and just putting your hands out. And I just want you to to pray along with me and pray through these questions that the Holy Spirit would seek to speak to you and encourage you and call you forward. I just want you to ask God, God, where, where in my life right now do you want me to be more available for you? God, where do you want me to create more space? Just ask the Holy Spirit that right now. I want you to ask God, God, where where in my life am I trying to control? And where are you asking me to surrender? She asked the Holy Spirit where he is calling you to surrender to him. And lastly, the scriptures say that, that those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. I want you to ask the Holy Spirit where he is prodding you to trust God in a deeper way and where he is calling you to obey. Jesus, thank you that you are good and that you are kind. God, thank you that you bound yourself to humanity. And God, thank you that faith in you unites us to you. Jesus, we praise you. You are are great. Uh, Lord, I love that the angel said that that Jesus will be called great, and tonight we are going to sing and call you great. Jesus, you reign. You are the son of the Most High, and your kingdom will never end. God, you are worthy of our worship. We praise you. We love you. Amen.